So, what are you doing at work? Are you there just to do a good job? Are you there to evangelize your workmates? Are you there to create beauty? Or to do whatever you're passionate about? Or are you there to make as much money as you can so you can be as generous as you can? This message will draw the Oops, and that's not what I wanted to happen. Um, oh dear. Okay. All right. Uh, right, let's sit home again. All right, this message will draw extensively from uh, this book by Tim Keller. I've uh, appreciated Tim for the way he has a good ear to the culture, but he comes back with a very well grounded response. So we're going to start from uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was work. Well, God, of course, but what do we see him doing? Rolling up his sleeves, uh, getting his hands dirty, getting down to it, and obviously enjoying it, judging by this repeated refrain throughout the chapter. Um, This is quite a contrast to the creation stories of lots of other cultures where the beginning of the world is a result of some sort of cosmic struggle between warring forces, and the, the poor loser is cast down to earth to work and make the most of his lot. That sort of suggests a different attitude to life and work, doesn't it? So my first point of the day is work is good. Now, You may not feel the truth of that when you roll out of bed at 6.15 or earlier tomorrow morning, but if work is good for God, it's good for us. Keller says, um, work is so foundational to the makeup of humans that it can be one of the few things we can take in significant doses that does not cause us harm. But there's a danger isn't there? A danger with all good things. That good thing can become the ultimate thing, can become an idol, become a god. Work is not all there is to life. And God sets an example by resting on the seventh day. So how are we doing, guys? I'm speaking to men here particularly because it it contributes very much to our identity. It influences our self-esteem. But it can rule our life. It can dominate our every waking thought, well, almost. And I've been there too. The seventh day is meant to be a day when we rest. Not resting so much physically, well, that is good but in the sense of acknowledging that our trust is in God and not in our work. So we see in this Genesis chapter 1 a cycle of work and rest. And if even God rested on that seventh day, surely so should we. How about this observation? Genesis chapter 1 is considered... Um, 
to be something, you know, to be paradise. There's no sin, there's no suffering, no sickness. And yet, there's a heck of a lot of work going on. So on to uh, point two. We have a job description. When God created the sea creatures and the birds, <coughs> all he told them to do was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and fill the skies. But with man, three things are said that make mankind stand out from the animals. In 1 verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living land animal. And over in chapter 2, so the Lord formed from, Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to man to see what he could, would call them, and man chose a name for each one. So let's have a closer look at these verses. Unlike the animals, man is made in God's image. Much could be said of this, but I just want to say that it suggests that there's something of God's character, something of his nature in us. We're still limited. We're not perfect. But there's something about us that is like God. And, and that something makes us different from the animals. We're, to call, we're called to stand in for God in this world, exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in this place, as is vice-regents. Not only have we received the command to fill and multiply, but we also receive an intentional task to fill, a job description. We're not just to multiply, we're to civilize. We're to create society. For example, over in that chapter 2, um, in that verse we looked at, God invited us to enter into his creativity by naming the animals. He could have done it himself like he did when he, when he called the light day and the darkness night. But no, here he involves us in developing our world. And what about this verse 28, where the command to subdue and have dominion over? Those, those words tend to to provoke negative associations, don't they? But that's because we live in a broken world, broken and corrupt world. We live in, in the time after uh, Genesis 1 and 2. But this is Genesis 1 and 2. The thorns come later. The word subdue is a strong word that means real assertion of will, so as to subdue and have dominion means to assert your will until you have control over whatever. I think we've seen someone else already in this chapter asserting their will and taking control of something. That's what God's been doing as part of the creation process, forming, separating, shaping. So my understanding of this verse is that we are to continue to do what God's been doing, asserting our will 
over the creation to develop its potential. Just as God had to work the earth to bring forth its riches and potential, so we're to follow him by doing the same things that he's been doing, filling and subduing. We are to take, we are, we are to be like gardeners who take an active stance towards their, towards their charge. Cue an excuse to show off the results of my wife's efforts to subdue our backyard. How do gardeners take an active stance? Is that moving? It's not. They, they rearrange stuff so it looks its best. They pull out the weeds, they make sure the soil is right and the ground has enough water. We've been talking about gardener, gardens, but this principle applies to all sorts of jobs. Whether you're working with kids who don't seem to have anything between the ears or working with bits and bites, you are continuing God's work of forming, filling, subduing. Your work further develops, maintains, and repairs the fabric of the world. On to a, a new section. Okay, <clears throat> confession time, parents. How many of you have said to your kids, if you don't study, if you don't do well at school, then you'll become an X or Y or Z or whatever. Eh? Our intention is to emphasize that first part, but them kids tend to pick up the second. We seem to be so influenced by Greek attitudes that, that the work of the mind is nobler. Oh, for them, philosophy was the domain of the gods. They really look down on manual work. I kind of sometimes wonder whether our pay scales tend to align with that view. Martin Luther was, was meditating on Psalm 147.13 where it says, He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you, within the walls, within, you know, within the walls. Luther asked, how does God strengthen the bars for the security and the safety of the city? Surely we're not to understand the answer to be that God helped the smithy make good, strong iron bars. Rather, it's through everything else that helps to protect us, such as good government, good order, and wise rulers. These, he said, are gifts from God. So let me take a, a more familiar verse. Give us today our daily bread. How does God answer that? Well, there's the farmer who, who grows the wheat, there's the truck driver who carts it away, there's the road worker who keeps the road in good order, there's a police officer to check the truck driver's not driving dangerously, there's the entrepreneur who builds the factory, there's the baker who gets up at four in the morning to bake it, there's the boy who stacks the shelves, the last who takes your money, and last and not least, the rubbish man who takes away the wrapper. They're all involved in some way of answering your, that prayer. God cares for the needs, for our needs, through the work of others whom he calls to do the work. 
So point three is that all kinds of work has dignity if it advances the common good. Have you ever thought of this? In the Old Testament, we see God as a gardener. And in the New Testament, we see him as a carpenter. On to a new section, workers' service. And we're going to a rather unlikely place to unpack this. In this chapter, we see Paul dealing with all sorts of marriage-related issues. Then he talks about slaves relating to their masters, and then he goes to talking about marriage again. Paul is counselling the new believers in Corinth that now they have become Christians, they don't need to drop their, un their non-believing wife or husband or change their social status or change their job. And in the middle of this chapter, we have this verse. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called them. This is my rule in all the churches. Notice the words assigned and called. How are these words used in the Bible? Well, the word assigned is, is, is used to speak of it, God assigning spiritual gifts. And the word call is used in a variety of contexts. God calls us as Christians. A pastor and a missionary is said to have a calling. And even the group of people like us meeting as a church, that in Greek means the called ones. So notice that the context of these verses is people participate, participating specifically in spiritual endeavors. But here, in chapter verse 17, Paul is not referring to church ministries, but to our everyday, ordinary relationships and work. The implication is clear. Just as God equips Christians for the building up of the body of Christ, so he also equips all people with talents and gifts for various kinds of work for the purpose of building up the human community. But notice, there's a cutting edge to this verse that applies to all of us, young and old. Let me read it again. Only let each person lead a life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. We like to think of our work, our career, don't we? I must advance my career. But who called me to this work? Who assigned the job? Who gave me the gifts and abilities to do the job? This, the message of this verse cuts across not only the modern ideas of, of autonomy, you know, I'm free to do what I like, free to choose whatever job I want. It, it cuts across postmodern concepts that value self-fulfillment, where the job gets turned down because it doesn't fill, fulfill my desire for prestige or influence or doesn't give me the power to change the world. 
So how are we supposed to think correctly about our work? Keller says, our daily work, our vocation, can be a calling only if, it's, only if it is conceived as God's assignment to serve others. So you might like to ponder a moment your motivation for choosing your current job where you are or the one you're considering to move to. This is a radical but biblical view of work. And we, we follow a radical guy. So point four, work is service. To see work as a calling by God to serve others. So if God has called you into the job, what is a key quality we need in order to do that job well? And this new section opens with a, a story that has an almost New Zealand connection. <coughs> February 24th, 1989, United Airlines Flight A1, 811 departed Honolulu for Auckland. The 747 had just cleared 22,000 feet when the forward cargo, cargo door of the jet blew open, tearing a huge hole in the side of the plane and sucking out nine passengers to their deaths. Flying debris had taken out two right engines, leaving the captain struggling to hold con the control column steady. He had to lower the speed to almost a stall to keep the wind from widening the gap in the side of the plane. And when he came to consider landing the plane, he discovered the wing flaps used for slowing the plane down weren't working. The plane was overweight with fuel and the speed at touchdown would be over the limit as well. Now, if you were on that plane, you wouldn't care whether your pilot was a Hindu, a Sikh, a Muslim, believed in UFOs, the only thing that would concern you was that that pilot was competent to get that big metal bird down onto a narrow strip of land called a runway. It just so happened that Captain Cronin was a Christian. He related a few days later that, quote, he said a prayer for the passengers momentarily and then got back down to business. And drawing hard on 38 years of experience, he made one of the smoothest landings his crew could remember. So here's the question, or the issue. Surely the spiritual meaning of our work is not just what we do on Sunday. So how do we connect what we do on Sunday with what we do the rest of the week? Keller says, Quoters on that. Um, just as the co Captain Cronin was competent to get that plane back down, so the bedrock of our ministry has to be competency. We must use our talents in as competent manner as possible. That's the one. So there's my fifth point. Work is a ministry of competency. We work out our calling by being as competent as we can. This might be a new thought to you, it was to me. Competency in our work is a form of love. We show our love by seeking to be as competent as we can. Okay, review time. 
First point was, work is good, provided that it, there's a rhythm of work and rest to keep it from becoming an idol. We have a job description to develop potential, to civilize, to create society. Third one, all kinds of work has dignity if, if they advance the common good. The fourth one, work as service, seeing it as a calling by God to serve others. And finally, work is a ministry of competency. We work out our calling by being as competent as we can. So that's uh, Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 3 comes along, and now nothing works as it should. Sin affects every area of life, spiritual, physical, social, cultural, psychological, our private and public lives, even our praying and laboring. It's all affected by sin. And it comes out in these verses, to the woman, first to the woman, God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he should rule over you. And in that first part, we see, we see something that brings great joy becomes painful. And in the second part, Focusing just on that word desire, which I understand suggests uh, is a suggestion of manipulation, and, and also the husband ruling the wife in the latter part of the verse, we see the impact of sin on relationships. As a result, misunderstanding, frustration, deep conflict, and unhappiness has become the norm in relationships. And the effects of sin on our work is spelled out particularly in God. In God's words to Adam. Because he has disobeyed God, God said to him, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of, all, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. So now we have to deal with the thorns and the thistles. And they represent all, the, all those things that keep us from being fruitful. All the frustration, the lack of fulfillment that we often find in work. This aspect of work is explored in a, an unusual book, Ecclesiastes. It's an unusual book because King Solomon, he takes on a fictional persona and dishes up a philosophy lesson. The important philosophical question that is being asked is this. What is the point, point of life? And look how he begins. In chapter 1, verse 2, and depending on your tr translation, it starts something like this. It's all meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then he goes on and says... What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? This phrase, under the sun, gets repeated often in the book, and it's important to grasp what it means. It refers to our life here and now under the sun. 
become a materialistic world divorced from any greater or eternal reality. And if the here and now under the sun is all there is to life, then we have to make the best of it, don't we? Before we die and are no more. So the author sets out to see if he can have a meaningful life based solely on what can be found within the confines of this materialistic world. So he ta starts by taking a look at work. He argues that even if you are one of the few people who breaks through and accomplishes all you hope for, it's all for nothing. For in the end, there are no lasting achievements. In chapter 2, we have... I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil in which I have poured out my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all the toilsome labor under the sun. He's telling it as it is, eh? We can't carry our job with us. He goes on in the following verses to paint a picture of a person so driven and harassed by his work that he's even awake at night stewing over it. Keller says, whether quickly or slowly, all the results of our toil will be wiped away by history. All is meaningless, all is pointless, if life under the sun is all there is to life. But we know, don't we, that there's more to life than under the sun. And it makes all the difference of how we approach work. Two stories to illustrate. Hugh Ross, uh, astrophysicist, um, heads up an organization that aims to dialogue with uh, the scientific community all the time, holding on to biblical truth. And um, you see those letters after his name. Um, astrophysics is a complicated sort of multidisciplinary study at the origins of the world. Yet at age six, he could not hold a pe pencil steady and was not talking. Though no one knew at the time, he was some way on the autism spectrum. He was going to fa fail grade one. But his teacher held him back after school for six weeks near the end of the year. She bargained, you don't have to say a word or write, just nod your head to indicate yes or no. And with that method, she was able to verify that he'd read 30 books. And through her effort, he just scraped into grade two. Now in Canada at the time, the brightest student took the seat down at the front, and then it went in order right through the, the class to the dumbest down the back. And in grade two, that's where Ross was, was placed. And he got lots of ridicule, but that motivated him to work hard to hold that pencil and by the end of grade two, he went from there to there. And later on, oh yeah, and then at age seven, 
he wanted to know why the stars were hot. So his parents said, well, go to the library, which he did. And he came back with five books on astronomy and physics. He did that repeatedly. And, and by later in his teens, he was even getting up and doing some public speaking. Now, why am I telling you this story? 30 years later, I get goosebumps over this, he tracked down this, that teacher. She was now 93. She had kept newspaper clippings of what he'd been up to, but he also learned something else. She was a Christian and had been praying for him for all those years. All that laboring away, unnoticed, behind the scenes. And look at the result. J.A.R. Tolkien is a familiar name to most of us now, but before the movies, he was the author of some rather large books. He was a leading scholar in Old English and other ancient language, Northern European languages. Just have a drink. He set out on a dream to create a story based in, in the world of Old English mythology. That meant creating parts of several imaginary languages and cultures, as well as thousands of years of various national histories. <sighs> Makes me tired just thinking of it. There would be various subplots that required major characters to travel to different parts of his imaginary world, facing dif different difficult or different perils, and all this had to fit together in a complicated chain of events. But World War II had begun. Tolkien had been in the First World War, and he had not forgotten its horror. And now Britain had Hitler knocking on the door, preparing to invade. And a key factor to note, just uh, for later on, was that he's considered that if Hitler did invade, Tolkien doubted that he would survive the war, even as a civilian. So he began to despair of ever completing the work of his life. He'd already been working on The Lord of the Rings for decades. The thought of not finishing it was a dreadful and numbing thought. So when the Dublin Review, which is a newspaper, called for a short story, he sent them this one, Leaf by Niggle. It's about a painter. The first lines of the story, we are told two things about this painter. First, his name was Niggle. The Oxford English Dictionary, to which Tolkien himself had been a contributor, defines Niggles as to work in a fiddling and ineffective way, to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. Niggle was, of course, Tolkien himself, who knew very well this was one of his own flaws. He was a perfectionist, always unhappy with what he produced, often distracted with more important issues by fussing or from more important issues by fussing over less important details. Prone to worry and procrastination, Niggle was the same. We are told that Niggle had a long journey to make, which he did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. Niggle continued to put, continually put the journey off, but he knew it was inevitable. What do you think the journey is? Death. Niggle had one 
picture in particular that he was trying to paint. In his mind, there was a picture of a leaf and then of a whole tree. Then, as, then in his imagination, behind the tree, a country began to open out. There would be glimpses of forests marching over the land and mountains tipped with snow. Niggle lost interest in all his other pictures, and in order to accommodate his vision, he laid out a canvas so large he needed a ladder. Niggle knew he had to die, but he told himself, at any rate, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture, before I have to go on that wretched journey. So he worked on his canvas, putting in a touch here, rubbing out a patch there, but he never got much done. There was two reasons for this. First, he was because, first, because he was the sort of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. He used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to get the shading and the sheen and the dewdrops on it just right. So no matter how hard he worked, very little actually showed up on the canvas itself. The second reason was because of his kind heart. Nigel was constantly distracted by doing things that his neighbours asked him to do. In particular, his neighbour, Parish, which uh, means church, who did not appreciate Nigel's painting at all, asked him to do many things. One night, when Nigel senses rightly that his time is almost up, Parish insists that he go into the wet and cold to fetch a doctor for his sick wife. As a result, he comes down with a chill and a fever, and while working desperately on his unfinished picture, the driver comes to take Niggle on the journey he has put off. When he realises he must go, he bursts into tears. Oh dear, says poor Niggle, beginning to weep. It's not even finished. Now, sometime after his death, the people who bought the house noticed the, that canvas with its beautiful leaf, and they put it in the town museum, where it hung there in, re in a recess. It was noticed by a few. But the story does not end there. After death, Nigel is put on a train towards the mountains of the heavenly afterlife. At one point on his journey, he hears two voices. One seems to be justice, the severe voice, which says that Nigel wasted so much time and accomplished so little in life. But the other gentler voice, though it was not soft, which seemed to be mercy, counted that Nigel has chosen to sacrifice for others, knowing, that he, knowing what he was doing. As a reward, when Nigel gets to the outskirts of the heavenly country, something catches his eye. He runs to it, and there it is, before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that, in the wind that Niggle so often felt or guessed and yet had failed to catch. And beyond his tree were other trees and mountains and more mountains. The whole canvas was full. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for this reminder that whatever we're doing for the glory of God, 
big or small, in worldly eyes. some who consider their leaf, their, their work just too small or insignificant, not important. May, may they know that God can use it in ways we cannot see and that only eternity will tell. And to those who are holding tightly onto their leaf as though it's their work is part of their identity, help them, Lord, to see their work as God's calling to serve others. Others might feel that they're like the branches of the tree, very much in the center of things. Help them, Lord, to trust you in the midst of it and to regularly enter into your rest and know your peace. And let us all take heed in Paul's reminder. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.